I'm worried about the room full of leaders and everyone is quiet and no one says anything. Because then you know we're not having transparent conversations. We're not having truth-telling conversations. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, here as always with my co-host, Lucas. Hello. And this is Building a Coaching Culture and we have a distinguished guest. I'm always going to say people's wrong names wrong. So, Mark, usually uh, I'll try it one time, and then we'll edit out the wrong way, and and you could say it, uh, Mark Slayball. That's correct. Yes. All thank right. you. Wow. So it's usually like one in ten I get it right. And so Mark's our distinguished guest. And just a reminder to to Mark and everyone else: who are we? Who are we talking to? So leaders of complex organizations who are competing and succeeding in this hyper-competitive 21st century labor market. All the changes that are going on, the cultural changes, the the workplace changes. So anything and everything related to leadership, coaching, I see you have this very eclectic background. And so any and all of those topics are relevant to the folks that we're talking to. Lucas and I usually go back and forth uh, asking different kinds of questions, but Really, this time is for you talk about who you are and the great things you're doing. So I'll pass the floor to you and let you brag about yourself a little bit. Oh, I appreciate the introduction, JR. Thank you so much, uh, Lucas. Nice to meet you guys. But yeah, my background is in the area of uh, focused on churches and nonprofits. I've spent 17 years in uh, kind of a leadership role within churches and then the last 10 years as a consultant and coach. My consulting area has been in primarily in the areas of what we can call fundraising, capital campaigns. The church needs to have a new facility, a new sanctuary, children's space. Uh, they call me. I help them grow their donor base and grow their giving, and we can accomplish great things then for their church going forward. An area that I, I have really been diving into over the last couple of years has been this this idea of succession coaching. A lot of my peers are getting to that place where they're thinking about retiring or handing off or closing this out and doing something different for the last stage of career. And so that's been a space that I've really dived into over the last year with some coaching. And that's been a lot of fun to help them kind of uncover what they want out of that last stage and help them craft a pathway for succession. So that's been a lot of fun as well. So yeah, that's kind of the professional background, if you will, kind of how I've gotten to today. Yeah, so we we work with for-profit, non-profit, government, and I'm a leadership guy. I'm a coach as well. For me, across all of those, leadership is leadership. Culture, even though the core values might be different, how cultures are built and sustained remains relatively constant. I think Matt, who's Lucas's pastor, started a church, what, how many years ago? Uh, like six gosh. or so. Six or seven. So he's living what exactly what you're talking about, starting a church from scratch. 
I think they just bought their first space and they're renovating that space. But when I see Matt and other churches in our area that have grown, leadership's leadership. And the challenges they have are the same challenges I have in my my for-profit business or my government customers have in theirs. It's building and sustaining relationships with human beings. Especially when you're uh, when you're engaged with a founder or a pastor, there is a high level of emotional capital, emotional investment that goes beyond even the the second or third owner of a company. That founding owner, that that pastor that has that deep, deep, deep emotional connection, they really have specific ways that they want to kind of end. And the challenge becomes how that leader wants to end what's best for the organization and do those always match up? And so I found in my coaching conversations about succession, not that there's a rub, but that we have to be very clear about those expectations and very transparent about what we want out of this. And I find that the, the more difficult the conversation, the more awkward it starts, kind of the more genuine result we get at the end of that. And uncovering that need or that want in that process has really been rewarding and just to kind of feel the room and and i don't know should i say it should i really tell them what i want and then it just kind of helps everyone relax and the shoulders go down and and they listen better and that's really just a it's a rewarding result but it definitely creates a bit of awkward moments at the beginning because they're not sure if they want to reveal everything that they're thinking about that because it's a very, it's emotionally deep. And, and I think that's the right words I'm looking for. It's, it's emotionally deep and getting that and uncovering that is very, very rewarding. That's incredible. You, you've just, so my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is uh, everyone I meet is wiser than I am that I learned from them. Ralph Waldo Emerson, you've just connected two dots for me that I've never connected before in my entire life. And that is, I know Matt, the, pastor as a human being, you just kind of hinted about with them, right? What's in it for me? I'm the founder and everyone would assume the what's in it for me is ministry, but it sounds like you're hinting that there's more than ministry going on here. I found that sometimes the leader wants, I'll give you an example, very specific example. Uh, the leader wants to leave the organization debt-free. And he has very genuine reasons behind that. And I think some of it is a little bit of the wounds that he carries into this particular situation from what he experienced as a young leader. But there is a genuine care and a sense of like, I want to leave this organization in a way that is healthy. And in his mind, as he's filtered all that out, one of his big things is debt-free. And as we talk about that a little bit more and what the five-year plan for this organization is, Assuming interest rates come down and get back to that place where they were of 2018, 2019, you know, and I think they have some debt right now that is like 3.75% or something crazy, just incredible interest rate that they have there. If those interest rates get back to that competitive place again, what they can do with leveraging money, the size of the organization they are, really gives them quite an acceleration towards that five-year goal that they have. And so as the leaders, we really had to talk about that in, in this idea of, okay, this is what the leader wants. He wants to leave the organization in a way that for him as healthy, 
is this place of debt free? I don't want them handcuffed or restricted by what they have to pay and monthly payments. And it's really genuine, right? It, there's nothing in my mind and in, in, as I was filtering it as the moderator, there was nothing nefarious or selfish about that. It really was a, a sense of care and, and of leaving them in a good place. But some of the other, other leaders in the organization who are going to be there longer than five years kind of said, but man, if we can leverage at that same interest rate, it really helps us go faster. And so they talked about that. And it, because it's an ongoing process, I don't know that we came to a final decision on it, but I think it really opened up the possibility of what everyone wants in this idea and within this leadership circle understanding the value of what that pastor has and can help him kind of lead in a way that, that he feels like he has cared for the organization as he exits. So with secession planning in particular, the first thing I think about is vision and, you know, five-year plan, 10-year plan, and having that, you know, foresight and imagination to be able to kind of visualize how is this going to look when I'm not here? So. What are some ways, you mentioned the financial kind of planning aspect. How do you kind of facilitate those conversations around having that long-term vision for leaders that are, you know, passing their organization on to somebody else? As you have either said directly or indirectly here at the beginning of our time, everything rises and falls on leadership. And the right people in the room to have these conversations is critical. And so even as we kind of in the pre-planning of what our first engagement looks like, I'm going to poke around at who's going to be in the room. I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of filter the, the job descriptions and the roles that they, that they are each managing. Depending on the sensitivity of the topic, I'm going to make sure that we have the right people or perhaps not the wrong people and really just kind of trying to gauge the level of trust and unity within those people that are going to be in the room. If we have to navigate through some of those other clarifying vision ideas, uh, hey, we can't really get into succession yet because we need to make sure we have a galvanization around what is our five-year plan and that everybody in the room agrees to that. Because then that succession plan fits a little bit better when we know here's the five-year plan. Okay, we need to have our next leader in place by X date because of these other things that are in place within the five-year plan. And that helps us know kind of the qualities of that leader, the timing of that leader. And then you get into what kind of promises do we make to that second leader? And that really becomes one of the biggest conversation topics is timeline. And when a, when a, when a leader says, you know, December 31, 2028, that's my last day. And as soon as he puts that date out there, and the next person in line becomes like, oh, okay, so January 1, 2029, I'm ready to go. Everything starts revolving around that date. And you have to, before the date ever gets out, I'm going to nail against that idea of, is that the date? Because if we put things in motion and we promise a date to the next leader, everything crumbles if you say, nah, I think I want two more years. And you really have to press in on that leader and say, you know, not that you can't change your mind, because I guess you have that, that freedom. But if you change your mind, you know that it blows up this plan and it potentially loses the leader that we've invested in. 
Just want to make sure that we all have that idea. So those kind of vision things need to be in place. We need to make sure we have the right people in the room and then really lean into and not be afraid to poke at a timeline or an idea and make sure that it's, I'll use a biblical term, refined by the fire. We need to really just kind of refine that idea, refine that timeline, really test it and make sure that it's good. I'm looking at uh, your description of yourself and you used one of my favorite words three times, joy. A lot of us in leadership positions, oftentimes during challenge and maybe not challenging time, we forget about that word, finding joy in our life, finding joy in our work, finding joy in our relationships. Could you talk to me about that word and what it means to you? There was a time several years ago where the church that I, that I had just recently got hired at took me out to this property that they owned. And it was 42 acres, and part of it had been like this set-aside part that they did all this groundwork. They put in this irrigation system, and it was like, almost like eight or nine acres that they had made for a soccer field or fields. It was that big. And the leader looked at me and said, "Yeah, here's what we're thinking. We think we can do soccer here. We can, you know, we can kind of have some activities. We've got some nice areas over here where kids can play. And, but we don't know where to go from here. And I said, well, I kind of have an idea. And so I kind of put some things together. said, we could start a community soccer league. There's not one here. We could uh, do these things. Here's a partner. Here's the program that already gives us the tools we need. And it exploded. And, and it became like, it became this thing that was really, really successful. And I loved the, I loved the startup. I loved the recruiting. I loved the training of coaches and referees and, and convincing some people to coach that didn't think they could coach. And now they're still coaching years later. I really enjoyed that. And one of the things that happened was I had kind of forgotten about that reward or that joy, your word. I had forgotten about that joy that had come from that experience. Several years later, I was in a conversation with someone who had, who had asked me, like, hey, didn't you lead a soccer league or didn't you, didn't you do that? And as I thought about, back on it and I started talking to him, he relayed, he kind of like interrupted me and he said, dude, your demeanor just completely changed how you talk about this, everything that is coming at, your demeanor has completely changed. And I think for me, it became a valuable cognitive clue on recalling the things that have brought me great joy and allowing that to help me in times where like, you know, everybody has a crappy day. You know, everybody has like this times where you're like, man, it feels like nothing that I'm doing is going well. And it has really helped me clarify on the opportunity to reflect on those cognitive cues of those places where joy has come in. And I think we often forget as leaders we are more critical of ourselves. We are more critical of our current days. And we are not mindful enough of the places where joy has happened, where success has happened, where we have made a difference. And for me, that's, it's really been a learning for me over the last couple of years to have those cognitive cues that help me recall the joy of the experience. Because when you don't have the joy, when you don't have a sense of accomplishment or success, and that looks different for each of us, right? It's not always about money, but it's about, particularly if you're a coach or a consultant, you're looking to help other people move forward in the place where they feel successful. And if they are successful, you feel successful. 
And as leaders, you you often get to this place where you're so hard on yourself that you're so consumed by the current problem you're trying to solve, you don't go back and remember the places of joy. And so I think for me, just trying to help myself as much as anybody else, having those cognitive cues about where there has been joy, where there has been success in my life, has really helped me in dark days and, and helped me in times where I have not felt like a success. And yeah, that's been a big deal for me. No, that's great. Thank you. And you kind of um, touched on something that resonated with me there where, you know, you have the soccer fields and you have the idea this could be something we could do. But then, you know, as a leader or as somebody involved in the organization, you might think, oh, but there's so many challenges ahead here or there's it's not going to be worth it in the end or, you know, those negative thoughts that kind of stop the idea from growing before it can really incubate. How do you kind of protect those ideas? Or even if it's not an idea that's going to go anywhere, you know, killing your darlings kind of thing. I know you have experience with the soccer example. Any other um, techniques or strategies that you have for kind of protecting those nuggets? Right now, I'm working on another big project that has been kind of that thing of an, it's been in an incubator. And I started it a year ago. I made significant progress on it and then it just kind of sat and I didn't do anything. I tried getting it going again, brought some people in to help me and it just kind of sat again. And one of the people involved, I just said, hey, it just feels like this is, it just feels like this is done. Feels like we're not going to get it to the finish line. And she went, I don't want to say she went off on me, but she, she started going after me and was like, you cannot stop. You cannot let this go. And she just listed all the things of how this has been something that's valuable to her. And this is why she's in on it. And she wanted. And so I think a key part of that is surrounding yourself with people that care about what this is. And that's really one of my kind of personal core values when it comes to professional pursuits is I want to work with people I like. And I have turned down clients that I just felt like, man, I don't, I don't know that I even like being in the room with these guys. I just don't think this is going to work. And I've just politely referred them to someone else or, or, or just kind of moved on. And being around people you like, being around people that care about the things that you care about, working with them is going to be that wind behind your sails when you don't feel like you are even ready to pull the rope up and, and get the sail up to the top of the mast. And so I think that's critical, uh, having the right people around you that, that'll help you. I think a second thing is, even before that, making sure that you work about work on stuff that matters to you. It's got to be something that resonates with your own heart or it comes out, right? It's, it's not that it's disingenuous as much as like there's no passion or connectivity be- between how you speak and what you bring to this energy and the topic that you're presenting. So I think, I think those are probably two of the most important things. In hindsight, right, I can look at this soccer league that started many, many years ago. And there are kids that are playing varsity sports. There are kids that even have gone on to play college soccer. And it's really cool to see their development. And by Facebook or social media, I can see kind of what they're doing with their lives. And it's kind of cool to like, oh, I knew him when he was like seven. And that's cool that he is like, or she is doing really well. So you don't always have that long-term rear view mirror to get that kind of perspective. But I guess when you're old like me, you can have that and, and you see a little bit of, of that. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't think you're yet old. Uh, so I, I saw a meme that I think is relevant here. 
You know you're still young if you fall down and people laugh. You know you're old if you fall down and people rush to help get you up. <laughs> so I'm not sure where we are in that continuum. but <laughs> So Lucas and I work a lot in nonprofit, transitioning government, churches, where it's all about service. But in many ways, at the end of the day, it's all about the dollar. I know part of your world is helping churches figure that out. And I'm working with a nonprofit in Australia right now, and he's really struggling with this. First of all, running a nonprofit effectively and efficiently, but also the fundraising piece of that. What do you tell people who want to live a life of service that, oh, by the way, there's a monetary aspect to this as well? A lot of nonprofit leaders enter that space because of heart, because of passion, because of care. Uh, something that matters to them, something that they want to change the world about, some sort of problem they want to solve. The lack of resources equals a lack of change that you can lead. And so if there's no money, there's no mission. And as a nonprofit leader, you have to deal with that reality. You have to, in your own mind, establish this idea that I have to increase revenue. Okay, let's just put it in, in very simple business terms. You have to increase revenue in order to accomplish more of this mission, in order to change more lives, in order to make a bigger difference in the world. You have to increase revenue. If you want to put your own kids through college, you, you need to increase revenue or else the board or, or whatever that governing body is, is going to say like, why would, we, why would we increase your income in this endeavor? So there's just very very stark realities about that, that you have, to, you have to understand as a leader. But the second thing there is, I would say, that you are not, as a nonprofit leader, you are not raising money for yourself. You are raising money for this mission. You are raising money for this problem that needs to be solved, for these people that need help, for this community that needs difference makers. You are raising money for that. You are not raising money for your own pocket. And so that should bring some freedom and some clarity as to how you have that conversation. The biggest thing that we do as, I don't even like to call myself a fundraiser, but that's really, I mean, that's essentially what this is. The biggest area that we work on as fundraisers is actually communication. It's the story that you tell and how you tell it and who you tell it to and in what order do you tell that story. That is what fundraising is all about. It is about the story. It is about bringing that story to the right people at the right time with the right ask connected to it. And if you do that, you will find resources that come behind you and help you make that difference. And so to the nonprofit leader, I would say, first of all, just kind of reiterating what I said here, as a nonprofit leader, please understand that you need to increase revenue in order to make a bigger difference in the world. And that second, you are not raising money for yourself. You are raising money to make that difference. And tell the story. The story is there. If there is no story, if the story is not there, we need to pack it up and go home. Because it's, if it's not worth doing, then it's not worth funding. But if it's worth doing, if it's worth you sacrificing your life for, if it's worth you putting in 70 hours a week, if it's worth you living across the globe from your, from your immediate family, then it's worth funding. And so let's tell that story and, and let's make sure that it's funded. Is the story the mission? Or is the story the return on whom I'm asking for the funding? 
There's a significant amount of research on generosity and what motivates people to, to be generous, what motivates them to separate themselves from their dollars. There was some questions around motivation and like, what's the number one reason that you give to faith-based organizations? And it was, it was literally, in terms of the top answer, it was literally about half and half, like 51-49, 52-48, something like that. And the number one answer for half the group was, I like what giving does to my own heart. In other words, like there's this internal, personal, reflective benefit out of giving. And then the other half, their top answer was the mission of the organization, what they are doing, the difference that they're making. And so I think the reason that that is important for the nonprofit leader is that you need to have a story that touches on both. When you have perhaps one video, the narrative is around this idea of the person who is giving and the joy that they feel out of their giving. And then perhaps your next video is a narrative around the difference you're making in that community and how the resources are doing exactly what you say they are doing and connect the dots between that giving and the difference that you're making. And so I, I would say the story needs to be complete and you can't tell that story in just like, you know, one 45 second social media live. Uh, you need to have the full story as a part of the composition that you are bringing into those conversations. But it, it seems like there's almost a third, and, and I'm asking more than informing, a B2B play. How do I convince a CFO who might have a heart for my mission and it feels good to give when I'm asking to go ask the CEO, what's the ROI for the CEO to send that money? Well, I would encourage you, if you have a choice between the CEO and the CFO, always talk to the CEO <laughs> because they will, be, they will be quicker to connect the heart. The CFO is immediately going to go to the balance sheet and the CEO always finds a way to make it happen. The CFO usually is not as creative in his thinking. That's broad stripes, but... Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. JR, I think it's, uh, it's about aligning what the giver wants to do, the difference that they want to make. As a nonprofit leader, also recognizing when you're having a conversation with someone where there is an alignment and having enough security in yourself to say, wow, it feels like there's perhaps not as much alignment here with our organization, but do you know my friend over here who does this work? Because that sounds like it's something that really would line up with the difference you're trying to make. Because generosity begets generosity. And if you are selfish in that aim, that alignment is going to come, it's going to come to the forefront at some point. So better to just be generous and, and be able to recognize it on the front side and connect people. Uh, if you are a connector, people will connect back to you. Wow. Great insights. So talking about storytelling, it, it comes up in conversations around marketing and, you know, the stories that maybe your clients are telling themselves and the narratives that are forming. And maybe we need to change our beliefs and change the narrative. And then it just makes me think of, you know, these archetypal kind of stories like the hero's journey or something with heroes and villains and action and things like that. Do you think about storytelling from that technical aspect of like, how do we take the pieces that this organization has kind of communicated and put them into a narrative that makes sense? What are some of your techniques there? You need to have a multifaceted approach to your storytelling in terms of the buttons that you're 
kind of pushing, if you will, or the type of giver that you're thinking about as you're, as you're maybe bringing this particular story to the for- forefront. I'll give you an example. In my own generosity, my wife and I are very rhythmic in our giving. We prioritize it out of every time we get paid, we are propelling our generosity in that way. A lot of other people like to think of their their giving or their opportunities more in a uh, what I'll call a one-off or kind of like when the need arises. I'll give you a specific example. Several years ago, there was a um, there was a church leader that I was talking to, and their pastor had a connection. I believe it was in Haiti, and it was very shortly after a hurricane had come through there. And the pastor had gotten up in front of their audience on a uh, on a Sunday morning and said, "Hey, here's our partner organization in Haiti. Here's the need that they have." we can rebuild a home in Haiti for X thousands of dollars. I can't remember what it was. I want to say it was like, I want to say it was like 10. And just so for our conversation, we'll, we'll just set it there. I don't know how accurate that is, but we'll set it there. For $10,000, we can, as a church, we can rebuild a home for Haiti, for someone in Haiti. And the church leader that was telling me, relaying this story to me, obviously someone with a high level of means uh, went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I will match every $10,000 that comes in. So if we get 10, I'll give 10. If we get 20, I'll give 20. And for her, this this story, this opportunity lit a fire under her of like, this is something that I want to give to. And I think it's important that as a as a nonprofit leader, you understand that there are several different angles at which people are approaching their opportunity to propel your organization forward. And if you can be a little bit more creative instead of always asking about the same way and the same manner, then you will bring in more givers to that opportunity. And so I think the story delivery or the the narrative that comes out that you deliver needs to bring invitations that are perhaps creative and different. Also, it needs to bring a story that is that is bringing a different emotional reaction. Go ahead and make me cry sometimes. But if you make me cry every time, then the next time a video starts, then I'm going like, ah, okay, here we go again. Sometimes you should make me celebrate, make me feel like tremendously happy about what this is. And sometimes just go ahead and hit me right between the heart and just tell me how desperate this thing is. And it's okay to confront the different emotions that are available because you want people to feel a certain way within a different conversation each time. Uh, when you think about hurricane victims, like, go ahead and tell me how terrible it is. Bring it to me. You know, just kind of hit me between the heart and tell me how terrible it is for hurricane victims. And then on another occasion, just tell me the joy and the celebration it is when we bring, you know, backpacks full of school supplies to our local school and the kids that don't have, that never have new pencils now have new pencils. Go ahead and give me that. And I would say as a storyteller, make sure that you are helping me understand all the emotions, all the opportunities that we are making a difference about. I like that. Like really taking the audience into account and and what you want to achieve with a particular story. Thanks. No, that's powerful stuff. So my final question, our tradition, Lucas gets the last one. When's the best time to engage with you? I'm starting my church. I'm in the middle of the arc. I'm getting ready to retire. All the above. I think the best time to get started with me is 
when you feel like it's a little bit bigger than you expected it to be. If you've got it all figured out, you don't need me. If it's easy, the first thing I'm going to I'm going to do is challenge you to make it harder, make it bigger. From a giving side of that, individuals, let's go back to the Haiti story. If he would have said, "Hey, for 50 bucks we can give a meal to one family for a month." Do you think that lady would have come in with a $20,000 match or a $30,000 match or would she have come in with like a $1,000 match? I think there's a lot of pastors, nonprofit leaders who get a little scared and so they pull the vision back so that they know that they can achieve it. But perhaps if they did stretch, that spiritual side, that faith side would bring in the people who could help get there. So if it's easy, yeah, you don't need me because I'm just going to try and help you make it hard. Not hard in the sense that we can't accomplish it, but you need to be stretched as a leader because as you grow as a leader, the organization will grow. Take us home, Lucas. Sure. So when I hear secession, um, the first thing that pops into my head is, you know, that HBO show with like the power struggles and, you know, awful characters that are just like, you know, climbing all over each other for power. So, I mean, you're kind of in that domain. Do you have to combat that kind of negative connotation around secession planning? And what are the kind of like, maybe the fears that you might have to squash in, when you come into that domain? Wow, Lucas, that's that's great. This is I understand why you get the closing question. <laughs> he always good. does this too. I mean, <laughs> I would say one of the most important things is kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the awkward conversation because, and, and this is probably where the best part of what I get to do is to work with nonprofit leaders, church leaders, and there is a sense of like honesty and integrity that we have to, that we can, uh, I don't know if assume is the right word, but we can kind of operate out of, we can operate from, and I can, there's a high level of trust in the room generally in, in those scenarios. And I think it is about those awkward conversations dealing with it right up front and saying, and I will even, there have been times where I, I will kind of be transparent for myself and just say, hey, as the moderator of this group, as someone who has actually been burned by the churches that I was hired and, and on staff at, I have a little bit of a bent towards the pastor and his position here. So if you hear that bent coming out, just kind of call me on it and that's okay. But I'm going to tell you right now, I, I have a sense of like, care that I want to make sure that 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 leader is taken care of. Because here's a a little bit of difference between nonprofit and in a marketplace operation is in a nonprofit space, in a church space, any leader who has been at a church for that number of years, right, where he gets to call the shot, if he's the founding pastor, he has sacrificed tremendously in order for that church, that, that organization to be where they are. And so because of that, it's not like I'm advocating for, you know, a certain salary or a certain like, you know, payout as he goes or anything like that, but really just this idea of he has probably bled and lost sleep over this thing at a very high level. And so what he cares about in this transition comes from that deep place. And so let's make sure we honor that, but let's not just assume that all of it is gold and we need to carry that through. So in those conversations, while I do have a bent towards that pastor, I need to also like call out the crazy and say like, dude, that's, I'm not sure that's the best thing. And usually if I'm thinking that a little bit, there's someone else in the room who is thinking that a lot. 
And then it gives permission for that that awkward conversation to become a very a very rewarding outcome. And uh, I just think in a, in a succession conversation, you got to have someone, and you got to have multiple people really who can be transparent with each other. A very trusted friend told me a couple of years ago. He said, "I'm I'm never worried about the hard conversations. If we're having if we're having a little bit of confrontation, if we're having like this kind of people going at each other, we can work through that. That's that's actually a good thing." He said, "What I am worried about is I'm worried about the." room full of leaders and everyone is quiet and no one says anything because then you know we're not having transparent conversations we're not having truth-telling conversations and as a coach you just gotta you gotta bring that out uh you gotta read the body language and you you gotta say hey uh susan it uh seems like perhaps there's something you want to say here i'm kind of sensing a little bit of tension or maybe some pushback on the idea Tell me what's going on. Tell me how you're processing and just bring that out. And that's your job. That's your job as a coach. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.